Shall we bow our heads and hearts before the Lord of the book? We praise thee, our Heavenly Father, for the fact of Jesus Christ, that he came into this world and became one of us, that he brought us your light, your clear, pure message, that he took upon himself all of our sins, and exposed himself to your holiness by there on the cross of Calvary and settle forever the question of our sin and our relationship to you through the shedding of his own blood. We thank you that he was buried, that on the third day you reached down and you, you raised him from the grave and that he is now in his body at thy right hand making intercession for us. And he is ready to give his Holy Spirit and to cleanse all who will believe in his holy name. We pray that you'll make this message very plain to everyone here in thy sanctuary this morning. And you have challenged us to send this message to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we pray that we shall become involved, deeply involved, in the holy mission which you've given to your church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This coming July, there's going to be a great missionary conference over in Switzerland. Some 2,000 or more missionaries will be meeting for a strategy conference concerning mainly how and what methods to use to propagate the message of Christ to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's going to be a profitable conference. However, unfortunately, in that conference, we face the same phenomena, the same strange phenomena that you face in the church today. They're meeting together in many sessions to discuss what is the mission of the church. 2,000 years ago, almost 2,000 years ago, our Lord gave this mission to the church. And here we are, 1974, still discussing it, still trying to decide what is the mission that God has given to the church. Now this confusion is, of course, the direct result of many who have failed to submit themselves to the clear testimony of the Bible. The Word of God is plain concerning what our mission in this world really is. Some of this confusion comes from the failure of many to distinguish between the various and sundry commands that God has given to men and to confuse them with that which he has given to the church. Some uh, time ago at an international missionary conference, one evangelical Bible speaker and one wonders how in the world he ever got onto the platform to be able to preach his message but fortunately he was there and had the opportunity to open the Bible to those people. It was rather strange at that conference that anybody would bother opening a Bible, but he did. And from it he gave a message concerning God's mandates to man. And in, he, in it he pointed out from the Word of God that there are three mandates which God has given to men primarily three mandates. 
The first of these is found in the book of Genesis. And if you'll take your Bible, I'd like you to turn there this morning with me to Genesis chapter 1, where we have the announcement concerning the creation of man. In verse 26, we read, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth and every tree and which is a fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for food. Now in this passage you'll notice that God did three things. First of all, he created man as male and female in his own image. Secondly, he married them. It says in verse 28, and God blessed them. That's a ceremonial word referring to the fact that he married them. And then in verse, it, the next part of the verse says he gave them three specific commands. First of all, they were to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. That is, man was to populate this planet with his own species. Secondly, they were to subdue the earth. That is, man was to explore, to understand, to learn how to control his environment, to understand it, and to use it for his benefit. And thirdly, it says in verse in the rest of that verse, in verse 29, rather, it says, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed. To you it shall be for food. In other words, he was to sustain himself by eating and using the fruits of the earth. Now, somebody has called this the cultural mandate that God has given to man. Here is man's authority for his research into the development and into the use of his earthly environment. Here is man's right to develop and to organize his social and political life. Here is the farmer's right to develop agriculture, the miner's authority for the searching out, for the finding, for the securing, and for the employing of the varieties of minerals that are in the earth. Here is a social worker's authority for insisting that all human life be employed humanely, honestly, and justly so that man's rights might be preserved. Now this is God's cultural mandate for all men. He did not give this mandate to a few. He gave it to man. Every man. Now, my becoming a Christian, my accepting Jesus Christ as my personal Savior 
and being born again and being baptized by his Holy Spirit into the church of Jesus Christ does not excuse me from my obligation to participate in the fulfillment of this mandate. Every believer is expected to pull his weight in this human task. We can't turn our backs upon men who are being treated unjustly and say it's none of our affairs. We can't turn our backs upon people that are hungry and say that's none of our business. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are human beings and we are responsible to help and to participate in the great human task given by men to all men, given by God to all men. However, this is not God's special mandate to the church. Some, and there's a loud voice in the churches today, and there's a dominant voice in many of our so-called, quote, mission conferences of our church today. There's a loud voice saying that this is the primary ministry. This is the primary task of the church. God has raised up his church, and the church is to go about, and this is the thing that Christ is interested in. They divide themselves. There are some who believe that that Christ is personally involved in the affairs of this earth to see to it that man accomplishes this, this cultural mandate that God has given to man. Some of them who deny the personality of Christ, they talk in whatever it possibly could mean, that this is the, the great work of the cosmic Christ through the human nature who is accomplishing this upon the earth and that we should be with it. We should tell it as it is. We should get involved in fulfilling this as a mandate. And they say, this is the great responsibility of the church. God has raised the church for this thing. Therefore, they justify the fact that they took church monies, mission funds, and they contribute to revolutionary groups in foreign lands where there's oppression. They say that we should become involved in the great social programs of this world. Now, may I make it clear? May I remind you what we have said in the beginning, that as individual Christians, we cannot turn our back upon performing our share of the cultural mandate. But nowhere in the Word of God is this ever indicated to be a program that God has limited to a certain special group of men. It's his mandate for all men. It's not his special mandate for the church. Now, of course, man corrupted himself. And because man corrupted himself and went in his corruptible ways, we read in the book of Genesis that God reached down and chose one man out of the multitudes of men a man named Abraham. From this man, Abraham, God raised up a seed. God raised up a nation. And through the discipline of slavery in Egypt, he brought that nation out of Egypt in freedom and took them to the foot of Mount Sinai. 
And there, God spoke in a voice, in a voice that the whole nation could hear, and gave his second great mandate. He did not give it to all men. He gave it uniquely to the people of Israel, to that nation which he separated from Israel, from Egypt, and brought to the spot there in Mount Sinai. And there from Mount Sinai, he spoke to the people of Israel. And in Exodus chapter 20, you have it recorded. Look at it, please. Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, who brought thee out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. Now notice to whom he is speaking. He is not saying this to all men. He is not saying this to the Christian church. He spoke this plainly and clearly to the nation of Israel. And he said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any carved images or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity upon the fathers and upon the children of the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and show mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And down in verse, uh, in verse 12, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the earth land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, etc. He gave to the nation of Israel his law, his testimony concerning his own personal righteousness. His testimony concerning the personal righteousness and structure of the whole of mankind that God has planned. And he gave this mandate to the nation of Israel. If you go on reading into the book of Leviticus, into the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you will see that the charges he gave to Israel, they were to teach this law to every one of their children, binding them upon the foreheads and upon the persons of their children so they could not forget them at any time. They were to do the same to every stranger that came into their midst. They were to be used of God to go unto the nations of the world and to proclaim the great truth of God's righteousness as revealed in the law. Now, God gave this mandate to the nation of Israel. The prophets came along and they prophesied something. I want you to look at me with, uh, with me at the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2. What a tremendous promise is given here. The word of Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Jude in Jerusalem. Please note that. He doesn't say that this is something concerning the church. He doesn't say this is something concerning the Jewish, the Judo-Christian peoples. He said this is something concerning Judah and Jerusalem, what God has for the nation of Israel. Notice it carefully. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills 
and all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we shall walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Notice, this is his command, this is his promise and prophecy concerning the work that the nation of Israel would do for him. And he promised that the day is going to come when he is going to establish Israel in Jerusalem and in the land and through the nation of Israel. His law, his light from the law is going to flow out unto all peoples and peoples from all nations will come and will be taught his law from the people of Israel. Now I realize that when you pick up your hymn book, you read of hymns of the church going forth from Zion with the gospel of Christ and referring to this passage of the church it had nothing to do with the church. It was not written to the church. It does not speak to the church in any sense of the word. This is a command given to the nation of Israel. This is a promise given to the people of Israel. As with man, Israel corrupted herself. She changed the purpose of God's moral mandate, which according to Romans chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, I wish we had time to look at that, but we don't. Mark it down and look it up for yourself. According to that, they changed the purpose of the law, which was to bear witness concerning the righteousness of God. And they made it a method of salvation. God never intended that a man should read the law and then say to himself, now that's the law. By obeying it, I'm going to become right with God and be saved. God never intended man to do that because he knows, knows that no man can do it. God never planned salvation for one individual that way. God does not plan to save Israel that way. But Israel corrupted the law from its original purpose and made it a means and a scheme of salvation. And you remember that after the church was born upon this world, some of the Jewish, Jewish Christians within the church at that time, they brought up the scheme, and you'll find it over in the book of Acts chapter 15, telling them telling that, that they should go and tell the Gentiles that they had to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's one thing, and they had to be circumcised and had to keep the law of Moses if they were to be saved. And the apostles rose up in opposition to this doctrine. They said, that is not the message of the church. That is not the ministry of the church. And uh, they proclaimed the fact Peter stood up and, and showed them clearly how that when he preached the gospel, as he showed them that they were not to take on the yoke of the law as a way of salvation, which God never intended to give to man, but that they were going to be saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he went out and preached this wonderful message, how people were really saved. And then he said, we are not to carry on. It is not our responsibility. It is not our ministry to carry on this ministry of the law to people. And then he reminded them 
James stood up and he reminded them a very important truth. He said, as you go out and preach the gospel, don't forget it. That in every principal city there is a synagogue that is bearing witness to the law among the people. You see, it's the unique ministry of the nation of Israel to bear witness to the law. That is not the mandate or message or commission of the church. I remember as a, as a missionary in Africa, a rather new missionary in Africa, I was uh, evangelizing along a road and I, I came to a town called Gazali. And I had parked my car in the shade there and was sitting off to the side under the shade of a mango tree uh, trying to eat my lunch and, and swat the ants that were crawling all over us. And up the road came some uh, people and they spotted my car and they began to talk among themselves. I, they knew it was a white man and they assumed I couldn't understand their language and so they were very frank in what they said. Sometimes that gets embarrassing, you know. But anyway, they, one said, Who is, whose car is that? And they said, oh, that's the white man of God. I thought that was nice. They didn't know me very well, but I'm glad they recognized that at least I was there ministering the word of God. And so the other lady says, uh, oh, well, what is this message about God? And then this fellow said, well, the message about God is that you, uh, you shouldn't drink and you shouldn't have two wives and you shouldn't smoke and you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that and you shouldn't do the other thing and he went right on down the list and as he said it I got limped down in my seat and groaned of course you know what I did I got up and walked out and spoke to the people as best I could in their language and I said to them listen I said that is not the message that might be the message of a legalist, the message of, a, of the law, but that is not the message of the church. The message of the church is concerning the person of Jesus Christ and his wonderful power to save all who will come unto him by faith. You see, God has given to us this mandate. He has given to all men this cultural mandate, but it is not the special commission he has given to the church. He has given uh, to uh, Israel this moral mandate. And Israel has and continues and will complete that wonderful ministry of testifying to the righteousness of the God as revealed in the law. But it is not, it is not the mandate given to the church. The mandate given to the church is spoken in at least five or six passages in the New Testament very clearly. I want you to look at two of them this morning. Look at the book of Mark. Mark, chapter 16. Mark, chapter 16. Verse 15. And he said unto them, Go, ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. That is the Christian mandate. 
we are to go to people and to verbalize to those people the gospel. Well, now, just what is the gospel? The mandate given to man there in the garden is not the gospel. The mandate given to Israel there at the foot of the mountain is not the gospel. What is the gospel? Oh, without taking one of the many tasks or many passages we could turn to, may I remind you, because I'm sure you're aware of what I'm talking about, of the great truth here. The gospel is the fact that God so loved the world that as he saw a man lost in sin, unable to save himself, though God gave him the law, though God gave him the universe, God gave him this wonderful earth to live in, man could not use it to save himself. Man cannot follow the law to save himself. And so God gave him a Savior. God gave his only begotten Son. And Jesus Christ came into the world, and he became one of us, a man. And then he did a tremendous thing. He took our sin upon himself. Every single sin we had or will commit, he took upon his own head and exposed himself there on the cross to the righteous eyes of God, the judge of the universe. And the billows and waves of God's wrath were poured out upon him. And there on the cross, with his own blood and his own suffering, Jesus Christ paid the eternal price for my sin and for your sin. And then he was buried. And on the third day, he was raised again with eternal life, life that is greater than death, life that overcomes death, life that is God's life, the life that will be forever to give to all who will put their trust in him. And they, he commanded them. Having come forth from the grave, he says, Now go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every person. And he that believeth in me and is baptized in my name shall be saved. And he that does not believe shall be damned. That's the gospel. That's our ministry, to go to men and to verbalize this message to men so that they can understand it. That's our ministry. If you'll turn with me, please, to the book of Matthew, chapter 28. Familiar verses, aren't they? Many of you can quote them, I know. I'm sure you understand their truth, but bear with us and, and catch their message right now. For he enlarges upon it here in his statement given here on the mount. And by the way, this was not the Mount of Olives. This was the mount, I believe, with the 500 brethren that stood around him there after his resurrection up there in Galilee, and he met with them. And we read there in verse 18, And Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye, therefore, and teach all nations. The word teach does not mean uh, to instruct as you do in a class. The word teach here means to make disciples. Go and preach the gospel, he said, to every believer. And then from those believers you're preaching the gospel, you persuade them to become disciples of Jesus Christ. Persuade them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's the third thing? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit. And when they have made their decision to become a disciple of Christ, then have that discipleship of theirs demonstrated to the whole world by means of their baptism. And that isn't the end. The next thing then is what? To teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Take the whole word, the word of the New Testament, and teach it to the people and help them to understand it. This is your message. This is your ministry. This is what God has challenged us to do. Men say this is ridiculous. To go to these people and to do just simply this. This is the commission God has given to the church. This is the task he has given to us. The all-wise, infinite, omnipotent God has committed unto us this special ministry. Yes, we are to carry our load of the cultural mandate. We are not involved with Israel in her mandate, the moral mandate. But we have been given a very special mandate, the evangelical mandate, the responsibility to go to all the men and women on the earth and to tell them the gospel. Tell them how Jesus can become their savior and that by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, they can be saved and saved eternally. Persuading them to put their faith in Christ and become his disciples, baptizing them in his name, and then going on and instructing them in all the counsels of the word of God that they might grow thereby. This is the ministry of the church. This is our commission. Now I want to ask you a question. Who is to be involved in this ministry? Who is to be involved in this ministry? Over in the book of Luke. You'll look at it carefully, please. Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. The 48th verse. What does it say? And you are witnesses of these things. I want you to know something. That is not a command. Jesus does not command you to be a witness. But over and over and over again in the word of God, when he speaks to, the, to you about the fact that you have believed in him and you are saved and you are a born-again believer, then he adds another simple fact about you. You are my witnesses. You see, there's no option about this. When you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and are washed in his precious blood and have been born again by his Spirit and baptized by his Spirit into the body of Christ, then listen to me. God's word is very plain. You become a witness of the gospel to men. And the charge is now laid at your feet that you are to be witnesses of this thing. When you say, I, I thought a man had to be called to become a preacher. I thought a man had to be called to become a missionary. Don't confuse the issue here. Will you look with me, please, at the book of, Rome, book of Ephesians, a passage that Pastor Dave has shown to us so many times. But let's glance at it once again. Ephesians chapter 4 where it speaks of this very issue. And what does it say in verse 11? And he gave some apostles and some prophets 
and some evangelists and some pastor teachers for the perfecting of the saints unto the work of the ministry. That's right. God has made and called every one of us. When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we become his witnesses. And God has singled out from among the body of Christ those who are to be evangelists, those who are to be pastors and teachers for the purpose of training us to be God's witnesses, perfecting us, maturing us, helping us to become mature, solid witnesses for Christ. They are not to do the witnessing no more than everyone else. Every pastor is simply one witness for Christ. And every other person in the congregation is to be trained by that pastor in order to become more effective, efficient witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. This ministry is given to every believer, and there are no exceptions. The only question is, my friend, not if you as a Christian will be a witness. The only question is, what kind of a witness will you be? You are a witness for Christ. You can be a bad witness. You can be a lying witness. You can be a shamed witness. You can be a terrified witness. You can be a witness that hides himself in a cave. Or you can stand up and tell it as it is with the Lord Jesus Christ helping you and seeking to win others to Christ. You are a witness. God has called every one of us to that responsibility. However, I would remind you again that he has, he has called out from among the body those to whom he gives this special ministry of being evangelists and pastors. The work of the apostles and prophets are past. Today, he calls out from among the believers those to be evangelists and those to be pastors. Now I want to ask you something. Have you ever been in one of these Sunday school classes where the dear uh, lady teaching the class will talk to the little girls and say, all of you are missionaries? Have you ever heard that? That's not true. All are witnesses. All of us are responsible to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. But the missionary is a special called person. I can remember as a young man hearing this message preached from the pulpits of our church wherever we went. It was, it was a message that was thundered out. And I felt the call of God in my own heart through the ministry of those men as God called me into his ministry. Today I hear this watered-down thing. All of us are missionaries. And what's the, what's the result? Nobody pays any attention to the fact that God is busy today calling out from among all the witnesses some to be his sent ones to finally. The church has the responsibility to evangelize everybody in this area, and everybody in this congregation is responsible to be involved in seeking to preach the gospel to everyone in this area. But what about the other areas? What about the areas of this world peopled by multitudes of men and women 
who never have any opportunity to hear of Christ. God's answer to that need is that through the preaching of his word, through the ministry of his word, he calls young men, young women from the congregation, and he speaks to their heart, and he challenges them to give themselves to him, and he leads them forth and thrusts them to the uttermost parts of the earth. Will you turn with me, please, in closing to the book of Matthew chapter 9? Matthew chapter 9. Verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. I want you to remind you that that is our Lord's understanding of men. As he looks out into the nations, he looks over there into the east, he looks over to China, to Japan, to the Philippine Islands, to the islands of the sea, to Indonesia, to India. That's what he sees as he looks over towards Europe, as he looks south into to Mexico, as he looks all around this world, this is what he sees. Not the great happy man enjoying his own religion and finding his way by means of his own religion to God. That's the lie that Satan puts out among us by means of his, ancient, his agents of darkness. What did Jesus see? He sees men that are fainting, that are discouraged, that are beaten. They're trying to work their way. They're trying to gain. Some of them are very zealous in their religion, seeking for salvation. But you go and ask them if they have it. Have they found it? And they have no reply. Some time ago, a missionary friend of mine was in India, and he was standing by one of the great shrines. And those of you that make tours will go look at this shrine in India. You'll stand there and see its beautiful temple. Oh, how gorgeous and wonderful. And this missionary was standing there looking at that supposedly beautiful sight. And he saw a man coming up the road. That man would go a step. He would stand there, put his feet together, throw himself prostrate on the ground, and bang his head against the floor. And get up and put his feet where his where his head where, where put his feet where his head was, prostrate himself again, and he came up that road all the way up the steps, the winding, beautiful marble steps of that temple, into the sanctuary, into the entrance of the temple, right up to the to the to the altar. His head was a bloody mass, and there all day he laid upon his face. And my friend who was ministering the word outside, remembers finally long towards dark, the man came out, walking, head down. My friend went up to him and spoke to him. And he said, friend, I could not help seeing what you did. Did you find peace? Did you find salvation? Did you find the answer of your prayer? And with bowed head, the man kept on shuffling along saying no, no. Don't tell me about the beautiful literature of Hindu. There's the reality of Hinduism. No hope. 
lost. No peace for fainting. Scattered abroad, beaten by every cause, made pawns of the, of the rich of the world, and having no hope whatsoever. This is what Jesus saw. This is what Jesus saw. I remember coming out of a bush there in Africa one time. I broke, I was out hunting, and I came through down across this path, and I broke into a clearing down by the stream. And there were a group of women gathered around a young girl. And with knives, they were cutting into her body. This was a religious ceremony. Religious ceremony. You who laud the beauties of these, re these, these other religions and how that men can find God with them, would you like to have been that girl? Come out of your ivory tower and face the facts of what it is. There's no hope. Fainting. Lost. And that's this world out there. And no one, but no one, to tell them of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what does Jesus say? He says they have no shepherd. That's their need. They need to know that God has provided a Savior, that they can't save themselves, but God has provided one who can save them, one who can wash them from their sins, one who can make them right with him, one who can give them peace, one who can take charge of their life and bring order and establishment and beauty into that life. Though their life may be difficult and hard, he is able to do all this if they will but put their faith in him. They need to know of him. And who will go and tell them? Don't think that you can sit home here in America and send letters to them. Don't think you can sit home here in America and pay $2 to send a tape to them. They don't have a tape recorder. Don't think you can send some radio broadcast over to them. They may have a radio broadcast, but that broadcast is beamed on many other things. And when they do hear it, they don't understand it. These are not means that we should, we should discourage altogether, but don't think that these means are adequate. There's only one way, God's way, the way that Jesus planned. And he tells us right here, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. That's what he wants. He wants us on our knees. He wants us praying. He wants us to pray that God will take us and use us in our own community. He wants us involved in seeking to win people to Christ right here and then praying concerning these nations without him and praying that God will reach down into our congregation and lay his hand upon your son and your daughter and give them the greatest privilege given to a man under the sun to be one of those sent forth to tell a multitude about Jesus and his need they can find real salvation in him. And God is speaking to some of you young people here tonight. He is talking to you right now. He is saying, you have a strong body. You have a strong mind. Give it to me. That I may take you out of the humdrum physical things of this life that amount to nothing. And I might use you to establish my church in some remote place where you can see literally thousands of people who are sitting in darkness
come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and will go with you to heaven because you told them of Jesus and his power to save. That's the ministry he's given us. And he wants us for it. And he is reaching down into this congregation, challenging us to it. Will we pray? Will we bow down our head in obedience to him and pray the Lord of the harvest that he will thrust forth laborers into his vineyard? Oh, that God would baptize us with the spirit of prayer this morning to go out of here dedicating ourselves to this very thing. And oh, that young men and young women here would humbly from their hearts and bow their head to him and say, Lord, here am I. I'll do what you want me to do. If you want me, take me. Train me. Send me forth. Use me. Oh, that mothers and fathers would say, Lord, here are my children. Oh, that you would glorify your name through them and send them forth. Oh, that God would move us to be really involved in evangelism here at home and in thrusting forth missionaries to the uttermost parts of the earth. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we ask you in the precious and wonderful name of the Lord Jesus, oh, that you would speak to your people. We have asked you to do this. We thank you for the missionary testimony of this church in the past. Oh, God, we pray that it will increase. We pray that it will grow. We pray that there will be young men and young women right here this morning who in the years to come we'll see them go forth into the fields that are white into harvest. And if Jesus tarries, they can become great witnesses for you in these lands where they will see you use them to win multitudes of Christ and to build groups of believers that will carry on the great work of evangelism in their own land. Oh, God, do your work in our midst and glorify Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.